And welcome back. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. By the way, coming up tomorrow, our series of Conversations with the Candidates continues with Representative David Trone. He's a third-term congressman from the 6th District in Western Maryland, and he's running in the Democratic primary for the United States Senate to succeed Ben Cardin, who is retiring at the end of this term. So David Trone will make his case for his candidacy tomorrow here on Midday. And now it's Midday on Ethics, an occasional series here on our show with our good friend Dr. Jeffrey Kahn, the director of the Johns Hopkins Berman Institute of bioethics. Jeff, good to see you. Happy New Year. Thank you. Likewise. So you have a new podcast over there at the Berman Institute called Playing God, lowercase, with a interrogative there. There's a question mark. Uh, what are you hoping to do with this podcast? Thank you for asking. Yeah, it's um, we're really proud of it. It's a 10-episode podcast that reach about a half hour long, and each one uh, starts with a story, a first-person first story uh, that raises a bioethics question, and then we have a couple of experts and sometimes a science or a, a medical professional uh, explaining. Uh, so we're hoping to make the work we do more widely um, available, actually. So we sort of realize in talking to people, including when I'm on with you, that uh, people who outside of academia are really interested and actually their lives are really affected by many of the issues that we work on at the Berman Institute, the bioethics issues that we take on. And so we were challenged actually by one of the members of our board who said, uh, don't you want m more people than just your peers to know about what you do? Uh, and we said, of course. And so he said, well, what are you going to do about it? And so the, in a series of conversations, it led us to wanting to um, carry out some projects that were more public-facing in nature. And so this is one of those projects. Yeah, and, and as we, you and I do uh, on this show, when you come by, you know, we talk about various issues. Let's uh, examine some of the ones that you have uh, treated in this first year or the first uh, season of the podcast. you got 10 episodes that are out there, and the new ones are going to drop starting when? We're um, in the production, early production for season two. We hope that the first episode will drop sometime in April, first yeah. of season two. So yeah. coming right up. Yeah. Um, you did a story about uh, liver transplants. Um, here's a, a little bit from that uh, podcast. Uh, you have a narrator, and then we'll hear uh, from the uh, person who was in need of uh, a, a liver transplant. Uh, her name is Jamie. Her only chance at survival was a liver transplant. But because alcohol use is what destroyed her liver, the doctors told Jamie's family she wasn't eligible for a transplant. Not for another six months. My family, upon hearing the news, they were not very happy. The idea of being denied care didn't make any sense to them. So this is a very sticky wicket, isn't it? I mean, who qualifies who uh, is eligible, and the the reason for why they find themselves in the situation they're in plays into decisions that are being made on this in this regard. Right, and, and you know maybe just to say one more bit of about the context, there are many more people waiting for liver transplants and other solid organ transplants than there are organs available. And so in the case yeah, of... Yeah, livers alone is about 14,000 last time I checked. Exactly. Yeah. And there is not yet any kind of bridge to keep people alive while they wait for a transplant, unlike for kidney transplants, where you can be on renal dialysis for a very long time, many years, 
which is why the waiting list for kidneys is much, much longer than the waiting list for livers because people generally either they either get a transplant or they, they die. And so because of this problem of the too, too much demand compared to the supply, people in the transplant community made some judgments about who was more deserving than others. And so there was a, a kind of um, loose rule. It wasn't a requirement, but it was widely followed that a patient needed to be six months sober before they would be put on the list to receive a liver transplant, if the reason for the transplant was that they abused alcohol. The problem is many people who had needed a liver transplant because of alcohol use couldn't wait six months. Their liver was destroyed, and so they would die. It became a kind of death sentence for bad behavior, as it were. And the argument was, well, it's it's not right to put those people ahead of other people who didn't abuse their bodies that way. So it was sort of a kind of stigmatizing, you know, decision about responsibility. And then the second was, well, wait a second, if they did this to their first liver, why? what makes us think they wouldn't do the same thing to the liver that we give them for transplant? And it's just a bad use of a very critically shorted, short resource, a very valuable life-saving resource that we don't have enough. So they, they need to show that they deserve it before we give it to them. And that was the the policy. It's interesting. So first of all, to be clear, uh, if they can show sobriety for six months uh, and they last that long, if their their liver doesn't deteriorate to the point where, uh, you know, it's fatal, then they would qualify. But then they're still in this queue that's 14,000 people Exactly. Yeah. Right. And so, and the way that uh, people who were on the list for liver transplants are then prioritized is based on their level of illness, how, how likely they are to survive for some number of, of days or weeks. The, the closer you are to death, the higher your priority for transplant, which is also a little counterintuitive because you're waiting for people to be close to death before they're eligible, which means the likelihood of it working gets less, right? They're sicker and sicker and sicker. But the idea is people can wait longer. Let's, let's prioritize the people who can wait the, the least amount of time. And what's interesting is uh, when it comes to alcoholism or substance abuse disorder, uh, Dr. Wen, Lena Wen, and I talk about this a lot. Uh, it's a disease. Um, and there seems to be a moral judgment being made here that this person has let himself or let herself become addicted to alcohol as if it's simply a matter of will and willpower and not a matter of a disease like cancer or, you know, uh, any other, any other, you know, recognized diseases. So that's, uh, that seems to run contrary to what the medical establishment is trying to convince people, saying, you know, if someone's addicted to alcohol, uh, that is a condition just like, you know, a broken arm. Absolutely. And, um, you know, to, to just say two more words about what you just said, you know, the, the attitude had been, it's a behavior and you can change your behavior. Right. You, you engage in this behavior willfully in, in the way you just described it. It's not, you know, it's within your control and therefore you're responsible for the consequences of what you did. It's, as you say, it doesn't recognize the fact that um, behaviors that lead to addiction are often outside the control of the individual. And so one of my colleagues at Johns Hopkins in the, the surgery department, now the, the, the chair of the surgery department, Andrew Cameron, is a pioneer in this area and said, why are we treating these people this way? And, and against the grain, actually, said, we're going to transplant uh, as a, on a kind of trial basis, see how it goes, people who need a transplant because of alcohol use, and see how they do. 
And, and that's, and that's, the, that's the story. At Hopkins, it's called the Delta Center for Alcohol Research, and they are they are eschewing these rules that uh, many other uh, liver transplant centers uh, are have adopted for a long time. All right, and it has been really the standard practice across transplant centers, certainly in the U.S. and I think the rest of the world is not far behind, um, with a very few exceptions. And he, here we are at Johns Hopkins, as you say, Andy Cameron is leading the way. Um, sort of cutting against that grain and with great success. That's the other thing we should say without sort of, um, you know, c- cutting to the chase here, sharing the punchline. But the the voices we he- the voice we heard at the beginning of the that little snippet um, of Jamie, the young woman who needed a transplant, has done very well. And and the so far, there's no evidence that people who were transplanted who needed those transplants because of alcohol use do any worse than people who didn't abuse alcohol. Let me ask you about some of the other factors that go into it. You mentioned severity of the disease. The closer you get to death, uh, perhaps you're, you're bumped up in the line. What about geographic location? I remember uh, when Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, uh, needed a liver. He hopped on his plane and he flew from L.A. to Tennessee someplace, Nashville or Memphis or something, and got himself a liver. Um, is, uh, you know, if, if a patient's in uh, Baltimore, and there's a liver available in Timonium, uh, does that Baltimore patient go up the line as opposed to somebody in Cincinnati or in Phoenix who's also waiting for a, a liver? So um, the answer is a little different for livers than it is for other organs. So that's a, it's a little complicated. But the, the United States is divided into regions where organs are collected after people die, right? People who agree in, the, in Maryland, we, we have a box, checkbox right on our driver's licenses who are willing to be an organ donor. If you die in a particular region, that organ is collected in that region. For kidneys, they tend to stay in that region, first priority. Livers move around more. So it's not as geographically connected um, for livers as it is for other organs. However, you can list yourself in multiple um, transplant centers in multiple regions of the country. And if, if the center will list you, then you just have to be able to get to that center when an organ becomes available to you, which is why someone like Steve Jobs, who lived in the Bay Area of California, could list himself multiple places, including in Memphis, Tennessee, and get on his private jet and fly to Memphis when the liver became available, didn't have to wait for it to become available in California. Dr. Jeffrey Kahn is the director of the Johns Hopkins Berman Institute of Bioethics. We'll have more Midday on Ethics after a quick break. If you want to join our conversation, you're welcome to 410-662-8780 or email midday at org. After a quick break, we're going to talk about MRKH syndrome. If you don't know what that is, stick around. We'll tell you. I'm Al Waller. I'm Katherine Collinson. And I'm Mihaela Vince. In upcoming episodes of Clear Path, Your Roadmap for Life, we'll discuss ways to catch up on retirement savings and the importance of self-care. Tune in to WYPR's website and mobile app, all major podcast platforms, and transamericainstitute.org. You're listening to Baltimore's NPR News Station, 88.1 WYPR. And welcome back. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. If you've just joined us, 
It's another installment of our occasional series we call Midday on Ethics. My guest is Dr. Jeffrey Kahn, the director of the Johns Hopkins Institute of Bioethics. We're talking about some of the thorny issues that folks in his business consider on a daily basis. You can join our conversation if you have a question or comment for Dr. Jeff Kahn, 410-662-8780, or you can email us midday at wipr.org. So, uh, Jeff, let's listen to another clip from the podcast series, Playing God, which is produced by the Berman Institute at Hopkins. Uh, this concerns uh, a woman uh, who's got a, a pretty rare disease uh, affecting her uterus. Being a mom and having my own kids has always been a dream, but I knew that it wasn't, it wouldn't be possible for me. Jen has a rare congenital disorder called Meyer-Rokitansky-Kusterhauser syndrome. MRKH for short. She was born with ovaries, but no cervix or uterus. So Meyer-Rokitansky-Kusterhauser syndrome, MRKH. Um, what are Jen's options uh, having this uh, rare condition? Well, first of all, well, well said that you could get that mouthful out. <laughs> You're clearly a radio professional. Um, so as the clip indicated, she was born, it's a congenital disorder, so she's born without a uterus, a woman who's born without a uterus. So she couldn't carry a pregnancy as a result of that. So there aren't, aren't options for her to, to carry a pregnancy, um, but she could donate her, her eggs, um, create an embryo by in vitro fertilization, and then have a, a gestational surrogate carry the pregnancy. So she, that baby would be the product of her egg, and if she's married, her husband's sperm. So they're the biological parents, but the gestational surrogate would be the, the person carrying the pregnancy. Um, so that's a way to have a biologically related offspring. You could adopt, could go without children. Um, she didn't like any of those options, and so she she sought an, another approach, which was to um, something very novel, uh, which is the transplant of a uterus from another person into her body, which could then be used to carry a pregnancy. So they do this with kidneys, they do this with livers, they do this with certain other organs, but I would imagine that uterine uh, transplants are pretty pretty rare and a pretty tough tough go for the uh, the surgeon. It's a it's um, many fewer for sure, but it is now a growing area of transplant. What's interesting about it? It turns out not to be all that complicated to do. So as you say, liver, heart, lung, kidney. I mean, we we understand other kinds of solid organ transplants, but all of those are life saving, right? And so there's risk involved, both to the to the donor if they're a living donor, um, as it was in this particular case, um, or certainly to the recipient. So you sort of want the risk-benefit balance to be appropriate, and it's not a question. If it's a liver transplant, as we were talking about before, the alternative is death. In the case of somebody like Jen, the alternative isn't death. It's not being able to carry a pregnancy, and so that creates a kind of an entirely new sort of ethics question. Is it acceptable to put the person, the woman, at risk for the purpose of this transplant? Is that a good enough reason to undergo the risk, right, when it's to carry a pregnancy? Um, and so it's been now done a number of times, pioneered in Sweden, interestingly enough, partly because Sweden outlaws gestational surrogacy, not permitted there. And so there wasn't an option to be a, a donor of gametes, of eggs and sperm, and have a gestational surrogate, at least not in Sweden. And so uh, a, a pioneering physician in Sweden started this, 
uh, within families, it turns out. So mothers donating to their daughters, their uteruses. If you think about what that means, the woman who's receiving the donated uterus has having the uterus from which she was born put into her body to also carry a pregnancy. It's like second generation. Uh, like yeah, Super nepotism. <laughs> super odd, uh, but successful. Uh, and as a way of allowing women who otherwise could not carry pregnancies to do so. But the metrics here, the ethical metrics, are interesting because if, like in Sweden, you know, gestational surrogacy is not allowed, or the Catholic Church, I mean, the Pope just came out against uh, uh, gestational surrogacy. In this case, the patient is saying, I'm more than willing to take on the risk. So, I mean, at that point when the patient is saying, I'm good with this, you know, and if there are complications, I accept my uh, decision to, to roll the dice. Um, does that take the physician out of it? Does it, does it relieve the, the medical staff at that point of any responsibility or any obligation to, to, to make these, you know, risk-reward uh, judgments? I think the short answer is no, uh, and, and here's why. We we always want the um, the potential benefit of a procedure, whatever it is, to outweigh the potential harm, whatever it is, whether it's you know chemotherapy for cancer, or a kidney transplant, or in this case a uterus transplant. We we want that balance to be appropriate before it even should be offered. So that's one. Second, there's another another feature to that particular to the uterus transplant story, which is the baby. So the, the reason that, that Jen wanted to do it was that so she could carry the biological child of her own, carry that pregnancy, give birth to that child, and have that baby. We, no one knew what the risks of a, doing that in a transplanted uterus would actually be. So there's risk not only to the woman who's receiving the transplant, but to the, you know, the, the baby you hope will be born. And that it makes it even more complicated from an ethics perspective. Really fascinating stuff. It's always fascinating when you come by. Um, let's listen to another one. We talked about this briefly uh, several months ago, but I want to talk about it again. Uh, this is about uh, a patient named Andrea Rubin, uh, and the narrator in the podcast, uh, Playing God, uh, explains what happened to her. Almost a decade ago, Andrea Rubin was in a horrible accident. Her doctors thought they could probably save her life. But for two months, Andrea wasn't able to tell them if that's what she wanted. She was in a coma and then heavily sedated for several weeks. So other people stepped in to make life-changing decisions for her. And it got messy. And those other people included her very close friends, a father from whom she had been estranged. Uh, and the friends, as it turns out, came up with a different conclusion that when Andrea came out of her coma, she uh, herself uh, asserted. Fascinating story. Yeah, uh, and, and, and a not unusual one, although maybe the particulars are you know, somewhat unusual. She was in a very severe accident that led her to be badly burned over much of her body, including her, her face. And um, so she was disfigured. She was you know, blind in one eye. It was a, there was a lot of, of um, aspects to this, that if she survived, her friends thought she just wouldn't want to live this way. And they were very assertive and very clear about that being um, Andrea's wishes, that they knew. The father, however, had a different view about what should be done and, and, and insisted that everything to save her life should be done. Um, and because he was the next of kin, he, he had the power to 
make that decision on her behalf. So as an example where the people who said that they knew her best had a very different view than somebody who didn't, the, the claim was, know her as well. She survived. She lived to, to talk about it and said, thank you very much. I'm happy to have been allowed to live. Although she did say her her friends were probably right. Like like that, those, both those things could happen, which seems a little like cognitive dissonance. But it does make some sense. Like I, I, in retrospect, do like my life. I'm happy to be alive. But knowing what I was facing in prospect, it made sense for my friends to say what they did. Yeah, I might have made the same decision exactly. had I been in their position instead of her own position. Well, it's fascinating because um, the, this notion of making decisions for patients who are in comas. Uh, and this brings up the, the incredible importance of a power of attorney. Uh, all of us should have one. We should have a person whom we trust and whom we've spoken to about these, uh, you know, crazy scenarios. Um, but uh, that really does put the medical staff at a very, very tenuous position to figure out something for somebody who can't respond. Exactly. And and your your point is exactly the I think the the conclusion. It's it matters very much. Not so much what you've written on on paper, because you can't possibly envision all of the scenarios that you might end up in where you can't share your views. The most important thing is to have somebody you trust make clear that that's a person who gets to decide for you. It doesn't have to be a member of your family. It could be somebody who who you do trust, who's not a member of your family, but who you want to make those decisions on your behalf. It's called the durable power of attorney for health care. And that's a legal document, and it doesn't matter then if your estranged father says one thing if the person who's got the power to make a decision says another. That's the most important thing. The other challenge in all this is often what we say, and in, even in conversations with people, it, you know, it turns out that when you're actually faced with those situations, you might actually want something different than what you have talked about in prospect. You know, every, It's like there's no um, atheists in foxholes, right? You, you change your view when, when you really end up in a terrible situation. It's not the case for everybody, but it happens. And so... You know what do we do about that? Except the be- we try our best and hope that the the we're doing right by the person as best we can. Yeah, and uh, long, long, long time listeners to uh, our programs here at WIPR will remember my series of conversations with my dear friend Dudley Clendenin, who died twelve years ago. Uh, he was diagnosed with ALS, and he said, "I don't want to be around for the end of this because it's going to end messy." Uh, and then he changed his mind, yeah, uh, because stuff happened. Uh, he got a book contract, and other things happened uh, that he, uh, you know, he, he abandoned that position. So, um, you know, people are allowed to to change their mind. That it, happens, and they do, right? And it's a very human thing for for people to change their yeah. mind. So we do our best. Yeah, uh, and uh, you know, doing your best under the circumstances that you all have to operate is uh, really quite something. So the podcast is called Playing God. New episodes drop uh, in April. There'll be ten of them again for the second season. That's our that's our plan. Yeah. Can you give us a little uh, preview of the, some of the issues you'll be tackling? We'll, we're a little early days to to, um, to for me to say that it would I think jump the gun on a decision that's not entirely mine. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say very all being all collaborative uh, so, again. Yeah, Jeff. I'm trying to be collaborative. <laughs> I will say. You heard the voice of um, Lauren Aurora Hutchinson, who is the host of epi- of the season one. Uh, the host of season two will be a, a voice that's familiar to WIPR listeners, and it will be Aaron Hankin. Yeah, our good so friend. Your yeah. good friend and my good friend. Um, so Aaron is going to uh, lead the production and, and will be the host. So I would say stay tuned. You'll, you'll be, um, I hope, interested to hear. Well, 
having known Aaron for a long, long time, uh, I have every expectation that he will completely screw it up. So that'll be great. (laughs) (laughs) I will pass that on. (laughs) Dr. Jeffrey Kahn is the director of the Johns Hopkins Institute of Bioethics. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. We'll see you soon. Thank you, Tom. That's it for us today. Coming up tomorrow, we continue our series of conversations with the candidates. My guest will be Congressman David Trone. He's running in the Democratic primary for the United States Senate. Maryland's senior Senator Ben Cardin is retiring next January at the end of this term. Representative Trone and Prince George's County Executive Angela also Brooks are the leading contenders in the race to succeed Senator Cardin. David Trone will take my questions and yours tomorrow here on Midday. You're welcome to give us a call or drop us an email. Here and Now is up next at the top of the hour after news. I'm Tom Hall. Thanks for joining us. Have a great day. You're listening to Baltimore's NPR News Station. Member supported 881 WYPR.